This episode contains depictions of violence that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creepy Stories with Laura. I'm Laura, obviously. If this is your first time tuning in, this is an episode that we release once a month. First to our Patreon members who get some additional stories. And then finally to all of our listeners, because who doesn't love getting a little creeped out from time to time? In a good way. (laughs) Today's episode is going to include five stories for everyone, and then if you are a lucky Patreon member, you're getting two additional stories. So let's dive in with the first one, shall we? The Silhouette The wind whipped through William's hair as he finished strapping down his load. The smell of metal and his dirty tarp assaulted his nose as the wind blew across the icy road. William had spent the last three days fighting the storm the news had called the storm of the century. After spending most of his adult life behind the wheel of a tractor trailer, he prided himself on his ability to arrive at his destination on time, every time. He could easily be called a company man, although that was not a title he would ever consider giving himself. William looked over his covered load with a feeling of satisfaction. He turned to walk back up to the cab of his truck and stopped slowly as he heard the sound of his passenger side door slam. What the fuck was that, he wondered. He stood there for a moment, stunned by the realization that someone had entered his truck. The door was locked. How did I not see someone trying to break into my truck, he wondered, as terror began to invade his mind. William quickly grabbed his tire thumper from the rack on the back of the cab and approached the passenger side door. His heart began to race as he reached for the door and pulled it open. What the hell, he wondered as he climbed in to inspect the sleeper section of the cab. Empty? How can that be possible? He wondered as his tired brain tried to make sense of what he had experienced. William shook off the strange experience and got behind the wheel of his rig. The sound of the engine as he shifted through the 18 gears soothed his mood as he laid more miles down on the asphalt. William glanced down at his gauges and noticed his fuel tank was creeping towards the empty mark. Good timing, I'm about due for a cup of coffee, he thought, as he geared down and approached the upcoming exit. The engine brake bellowed in the night air, cutting through the silence of the empty, snow-covered roads. The air brakes resonated a familiar sound as he pulled his foot off the pedal. What the hell is that, he wondered, as a figure stood motionless in the intersection. William pressed his foot back into the brake pedal and stared at the dark silhouette. A strong gust of wind suddenly picked up and blew white powdery snow all around him. He lost sight of the silhouette as the blowing snow obscured his vision. The wind suddenly died down and restored William's sight, revealing an empty intersection. Damn minds playing tricks on me. 
I must need that coffee more than I knew, he thought, as a laugh escaped his lips. William pulled his old rig into the truck stop fuel bays and promptly tended to his starving fuel tanks. The fuel pumps clicked off as his tanks hit their full limit. He looked around at his surroundings as he placed the nozzles back on the pumps. Out of the corner of his eye, William could have sworn he saw that same silhouette disappearing behind a parked tractor trailer. He gasped. I'm just a little shook, that's all. My mind is playing tricks on me because of what happened earlier. His mind rationed this as he walked through the door at the truck stop. William secured the lid on his styrofoam coffee cup and hurried to the cashier at the counter. The cashier lifted his head up from the counter, not even trying to hide the fact that he was sleeping. William set his cup on the counter and reached into his pocket for some change. The man just stared at William as he set the change on the counter and waited patiently for the man to complete the transaction. After a moment of silence, William glanced down at the floor, becoming anxious as the seconds ticked away. What's the one thing that scares you? What keeps you up at night? What haunts your dreams? The man asked William. William stood back, horrified by the questions. What did you just say? He asked. I said, will that be all? The cashier asked him. You sure, bud? I thought you said, William started to reply. You okay, man? You don't look so good. The cashier frowned as he questioned William. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, William muttered, as the man put the change into the register. William walked out of the truck stop in a daze. What the hell is going on, he wondered as he climbed up into his truck. William felt an icy finger brush against the back of his neck as a raspy voice whispered, I am what keeps you awake at night. Fuck, he screamed. William fought the urge to run and instead climbed back into the truck and searched the cab. He was relieved to find it empty yet again. This is getting really old really fast, he growled. William fired up his old truck and slammed the transmission into gear. The old truck roared as he accelerated away from the truck stop and back onto the frozen interstate. Goddamn shadows ain't gonna mess up my night. Pull it together, William, he screamed at the windshield. William pushed his old truck hard up the icy three-lane hill. As he reached the crest of the hill, his heart sank and his chest tightened when his mind processed the scene in front of him. A pile-up had formed at the bottom of the hill, and the realization hit him like a cold wind on bare skin. He hit his brakes and tried to slow his rig, but the ice prevented him from getting any traction. Just before William plowed into the pile of cars in front of him, he swore he saw that same shadowy silhouette standing before the pile. Our next story is very fitting for the times. Well, at least the title is. This one's called Face Mask Required. The stillness wakes me. Not that pleasant quiet after winter snow or the comfortable silence of a sleeping house, but a heavy blanket of non-sound, as if the air was afraid to stir. I lay in bed, barely breathing, straining to catch even the slightest movement. Nothing. Slowly I rise, not wanting to break the spell. Why is it every action seems so much louder when you're trying to be quiet? 
Even my breathing sounds harsh, my pulse thundering in my ears. I walk to the window, feet chilled from the polished wood floor. The early morning sun bathes the landscape in weak yellow tones. Snow glints and contrasts with the dark pine woods lining the path from the house to the river. Leaning closer, I can feel the coldness outside seeping in along the frame. I reach out to touch the glass, but my shifting weight makes the floorboards creak. I freeze in place, suddenly apprehensive, as if I don't want anyone to know I'm awake. Is that you, dear? A call from below frees all from that stillness, and suddenly, sounds rush in. The chittering of birds on the deck, the faint murmur of the heater, the clink of a spoon in a cup. I let out a breath I hadn't realized I was holding, and shake off the last dreads of sleep. Yes, Mom, be right down, I call as I finish making the bed. I'm home. Or, at least, my parents' house for Christmas. We decided, my better half and I, that it would be easier if I came up alone, since the borders were still close to foreigners because of the virus. To be honest, it was a nice change of pace, and I had truly missed being in a snowy climate for the holidays. Through the space of the half-closed door, I glanced into my parents' bedroom and think I see a body-shaped lump still tucked under the blankets. Funny, though. Dad's usually the first one up. First time for everything, I guess. I slowly make my way down the stairs, pausing to look at the art Mom had lovingly hung. A little piece from each place they traveled to. A handmade souvenir to be enjoyed instead of stuffed into a drawer never to be looked at again. One day, they'll be able to add new ones. Pausing at the landing, a small smile steals across my face as I glance at the tree and the decorations on the mantle. Another treasure trove in nostalgia, we'd collected the decorations over decades. It was always fun to decide the theme and reminisce as we unwrapped each little bauble. I round the corner, surprised to see my mom at the dining room table and not her usual perch in the kitchen. Good morning, I chirp as I hug her, but it doesn't feel right. Good morning, honey. I pause and my arms slacken. Are you feeling okay, mom? I pull back to see her face. Her eyes meet mine and something cold and flat flashes across. Here and gone, so fast I must have imagined it. Never better, why do you ask, sweetheart? She smiles and pats my hand, a gesture both familiar and alien. I step back. Oh, it's nothing. Things just seem a little... off. Must have had a weird dream follow me from sleep. Well, have some tea and toast, kiddo. That'll set things right. Grateful to focus on the mundane task of preparing my breakfast, I linger on each step. Still not able to fully shake off the weirdness, I mentally go through the day's activities we had planned. So, we're gonna play some Scrabble, then bake the butter tarts and the meringues. I run around in several cupboards, finally finding the honey next to the flour in the pantry. Then, then head out for an apparently socially distanced lunch at our tea house. Yum! Another search turns up the butter on the windowsill by the sink. 
Hmm. And maybe on the way home, pick up some Chinese from that amazing place in the village. Yeah, this will be great. Satisfied with my effort to brighten my mood, I spare a look out the kitchen window across the white expanse outside, the snow glittering against the bright blue sky. I take a deep breath and carry my cup and plate to the table, determined to stay in good spirits. Smiling at mum, I drizzle honey over my nicely charred toast and happily tuck into brekkie. Oh, she says lightly. By the way, dad stepped out. Said he wanted a new mask. The one he's using now is too old. I laugh because that's so dad. Anytime he'd pass in front of a mirror, he'd playfully preen and give himself a thumbs up. Now he was all about collecting stylish masks to coordinate with his outfits. But wait. Isn't he still sleeping? I thought I saw him in bed. Mum's smile falters, but then comes back bigger and brighter. Did she always have such a wide mouth? Oh, silly me. Of course he's still sleeping. I meant he'd be going out. Later. She takes a sip of tea, slurping, giving me a sidelong glance. I absentmindedly take another bite of toast, feeling unsettled. A frisson of electricity fitting across my shoulders and the back of my neck. Another slurp. And another look. Is there something wrong with her face? The right side looks almost like it's sagging. She reaches across and pats my hand again. Her hand, clammy, bony. Could it be a stroke? I look more closely, trying to see the telltale signs. And then... I noticed it. A thin red line just under her jaw by her ear. What is that? Mom, what's that on your neck? What do you mean, sweetheart? A pause. Kiddo? Another pause. Then in that tone when you figured out the trick. Dear. Is that blood? I see it more clearly now, the line. It's tracing along her jaw, spreading, widening. Oh my God, what's wrong with your face? My voice falters, catches in my throat, and it's hard to swallow. She gracefully touches her hand to her neck, peering wryly at the smudge left on her fingers like it's an inconvenience, a small frustration. Sometimes, with older ones, They just don't sit right. You have to adjust. A soft laugh and a sigh, and then she straightens in her chair. I'm flushed and freezing, cemented to mine. Still smiling, that too wide grin, she grasps her face with one hand and casually pulls. Her face coming away with a squelch. What? Ribbons of sticky. What is happening? Rivolts of claret trailing down her neck. What the fu- I stammer. Language, dear, the thing holding my mother's face says. With a grunt of effort, I fling myself back from the table. Can't breathe. Can't breathe. No, 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 no. I don't. It's all right, dear. You'll see it will be all right, it says as it gently puts her face back on, smoothing the edges so they once again lie seamlessly against her It's, it's skin. I lurch out of the dining room, legs moving like molasses, like a horror movie. A movie? 
A dream? This isn't real. Well, my not mom turns in her chair to watch. I hear a thud from upstairs. Knowing it's not my dad, but another thing. I choke back a cry as I stumble towards the front door. Remember, dear, if you want to stay safe out there, a low chuckle follows. My fingers brush the cool handle, and then I'm gripping it, turning it, feeling the icy air as the door cracks open. She, no, it, is still at the table, watching, amused by my terror, my flight. So close I can make it. The door, open wider now, lets the winter chill wash over me. My foot touches the welcome mat. Oh God, I'm free, I'm safe. A breath, a blink, and a movement so fluid and swift it doesn't even register. And then a whisper, soft and ticklish against my ear. Face masks are required. Our next story is called, What Do You Like About Playing Under the Bed? It all started when I was about eight or nine years old. Actually, I guess it may have been earlier, but that's around the first memory I have of it. See, I've had sleep paralysis for as long as I can remember, although it's rare now that I'm an adult. Most people that I've told about this have assumed I'm just scared of the dark or I have bad nightmares, but that's not it. Although I am, and I do. I've always had very vivid dreams. When I was dreaming, I was there. I could see, smell, hear, and feel. I was also very adept at lucid dreaming, having the choice to affect my dreams at will. That didn't work on nightmares, though, and I often had nightmares before these episodes. Horribly vivid nightmares in almost every night. Dreams of falling, fire, death, being alone in empty space, but mostly monsters, and those were the worst. Some of them were your classic 80s slasher film icons, Jason, Freddy, etc. I think my mom let me watch those movies a little too young, along with reading Stephen King, but she's still my hero. Those usually involved running and hiding while being in a strange place, usually creepy abandoned buildings or out in the woods. The monsters that didn't come from movies were way worse, though. Dreams come from your subconscious, supposedly, so I guess somehow my mind created them. Although as a child, it seemed like they were from the depths of hell. Twisted, grotesque things, sometimes vaguely resembling a human form with missing limbs or too many. Hideous faces with skin missing or eyes hanging out of sockets. Some were not human at all. Giant creatures with wings and razor-sharp claws and teeth black shadows with red eyes that would just stand in the corner and watch me while I went about mundane tasks like homework or watching TV. Sometimes I would wake up before they got me. Not always. People say you're not supposed to die in dreams, but I have many, many times. I've fallen and hit the ground. I've burned up in fire. I've been stabbed and sliced. I've even had a dream where I was at a funeral that turned out to be mine. I didn't go back to sleep that night. Well, I'm not really scared of the dark per se, or even scared of the nightmares. I'm afraid of waking up in the dark. Let me explain what a typical night was for me when I was younger, and maybe you can start to understand. 
I would fall asleep in my bedroom with the TV on, mostly for light, sound would be just loud enough to make out what they were saying. Sometimes I would fall asleep on the couch with the light and sound coming from my parents' room before I had a TV in my own room. Then the dream would start. The worst one ever, which I had often, I don't know how rare reoccurring dreams are, but I feel I got them more than enough. It would start with me waking up in my own bed. I would be viewing as though from my own eyes rather than third person as a lot of dreams were. I would look over at my alarm clock and it would say 3.33 a.m. Always. Then the fear would start. I knew what was coming, but powerless to prevent it. I would slowly place my feet on the floor and stand up while stretching and yawning. I'd start to head for the bathroom. Not sure how I knew the bathroom was my destination as I never made it there. And I would trip on something. I crashed on the floor, hitting my nightstand, causing my alarm clock to fall on my head and bounce to the floor. So I'm lying there, cursing myself and looking under my bed. There's nothing there, and I mean nothing. The meager light in my room should penetrate at least a few inches into the darkness, but it's like a wall of black shadow, an empty void. And I freeze with fear. Suddenly, two small blue orbs of fire appear directly eye level with me, the eyes of some unknown being staring into my soul. Its breath was the worst part. I would see it and smell it at the same time. I only knew it was breathing because it came out like a fog, like when you're outside in winter, only it wasn't cold in my room and the breath upon my face was cold enough to chill me to the bone. And the stench, ugh. It was as though someone took dead animal carcasses and dirty diapers and lit them on fire with a thousand matches, like sulfur, burnt hair and shit. My mind would be screaming, run, hide, but my body frozen. I'm hyper aware. I can feel every muscle in my body tense up in preparation, but nothing happens. Then it grabs me. I see nothing, no limbs of any sort, but I'm being dragged under the bed. Then I am in total blackness. I can feel its disgusting breath on my neck and hear my heartbeat. But my sense of sight has totally abandoned me. I don't feel arms around me specifically, but I am being held there. It feels like someone has wrapped a blanket made of flesh around me, but is stronger than I am and holds me completely still. Then I feel its tongue slowly lick from my neck to my ear as though tasting my fear. In a voice I can only describe as broken glass soaking in blood, gravelly and grating, but wet, it whispers, what do you like about playing under the bed? That's when I snap out of it. I struggle. I fight. I swing my elbows, kick my legs as hard as I can, eventually loosening the creature's grip, and I would wake up. Here's where the real fun begins. I would be completely frozen sometimes to the point where I could not even open my eyes. Sometimes that would be all, just frozen for a minute or two, and then I'd snap out of it. I'm getting a little freaked out even writing about it. The memories are as vivid as it comes out. 
Other times the nightmares followed me. I remember once I was lying there frozen trying to force my eyes to close when I heard the same thick gravelly voice say, Come back under the bed. The games were just beginning. I couldn't turn my head to look toward the sound. Not sure I would have even if I could, but I could feel its cold breath on my ear. I guessed I must have screamed, although I don't remember doing so, because my mom ran into my room and turned the light on. I swear I saw a shadow out of the corner of my eye melt into the floor, heading back under the bed. She checked, assured me there was nothing under the bed, but I still don't know what to believe. According to the therapists and counselors I've talked to, I was experiencing auditory and visual hallucinations common to sleep paralysis. They don't know how real it was, though. When I would wake up in bed, once able to move, I would jump off my bed, making sure to stay well away from the edge, running to my parents' bedroom, and crawl into bed with them, sadly until I was about 14. Oftentimes, though, I would not wake up in my bed as I had fallen asleep. Sometimes after that specific dream, I would wake up on the floor next to my bed, which was the worst, especially if the paralysis kicked in, which was often. I've woken up on the couch, on the floor in my parents' room, on the kitchen floor, in the empty bathtub, even once on the porch. On these occasions, I would sometimes find scratches and cuts on my body, often small, although once I had a six-inch gouge across my ribcage, and I still have the scar. The therapist said this was due to sleepwalking and running into things. My grandmother had a different view on things. I love my grandma. She definitely wasn't your regular sweet old lady. My grandmother had a deep appreciation for the occult. When I asked her about my dreams, she crossed herself and did that weird little evil eye hand gesture. I asked why she was freaking out. My dear, 3.33 is a time of evil, she explained. 3 is the number of Satan. 3 a.m. is the witching hour, dear, when the veil between realms is thin and reality can be warped. It was more likely that it was an actual demon trying to drag you to the underworld. You were lucky to have survived the attacks. She also told me that I wasn't sleepwalking as the therapist suggested, but actually in another, I guess you'd say alternate plane or dimension, or even the underworld. We always thought she was a little crazy, but now I'm not so sure. I wish she was still alive to help my family. Recently, my seven-year-old son has been waking up in the middle of the night, right around 3.30 a.m., screaming about the monster with blue fire eyes. I was holding him after one recent episode, telling him it was a dream and he'll be okay. He kept repeating the word no. When I got him to calm down a little, I asked why he was saying no. He said he doesn't want to play under the bed. Our next story is called... It lives at the bottom of my stairs. I stand at the top of my stairs, socked toes curling into the carpet as one hand squeezes the door handle and the other hovers over the light switch, trying to decide if it's safe to turn the lights out. It's nearly seven at night. I have about an hour before sundown, but it's just dim enough in the stairwell to make me doubt if that really matters. I stare down at the welcome mat, and though I see nothing, I know the thing that lives at the bottom of my stairs is watching me, too. 
I know its gauzy white eyes never blink, and that its teeth, thin and too long for its mouth, extending far past its leathery lips, cannot smile. But I feel as if it's grinning at me. I know it's gaunt. Lanky limbs are curled and crouched around its small body, waiting to lunge the second the light is out. I know it isn't real. If it was real, I would be able to see it. But even as I remind myself of this, I leave the light on. You see, I made him up, the creature that lives at the bottom of my stairs. I've always had an active imagination. Many children create monsters or imaginary friends with rules. A man who runs beside the car but can only run in the shadow of the vehicle. A ghost who befriends you but is invisible to anyone older than you. A monster who waits at the bottom of your stairs but can't move until the lights are out. I'm not sure why I never stopped doing this. I'm approaching my mid-twenties and most children stopped around ten. Or at least they stopped talking about it. I try to keep my concerns to myself, though I've had to explain myself a time or two as to why I have to be the one who closes the door. I'm the only one who knows what he's doing because I created him. The worst part is that he only exists because I think he does. There have been weeks or months where I can go up the stairs to my apartment and not feel his eyes on my back, his claw-like fingers waiting to rip me up. All it takes is a stray thought, and there he is again. There have been times where I was too slow to close my door after I turned the lights out. Nothing happens right away, though I know he's in my apartment with me. There's always a chill in my spine and a cold stone in my stomach when he gets past my door, but it's not like he drags me down the stairs or anything. For some reason, though I know he's capable of killing me, he doesn't. Even when I succeed, sometimes there's this dull thudding noise that starts at 2 a.m. and continues until sunrise. Like he's slamming his dry, callous, two big hands against the door, demanding I open it and let him in. This has been the hardest part about accepting he's not real because I've had guests ask me about the noise. I never know what to tell them. Though on the nights he gets in, I can feel him watching me from the doorway to my room, which unfortunately shares a wall with that stairwell. He sits in the same spot all night, breath wheezing out his squished, bat-like nose, body twitching and contorting as he runs his clawed fingers over his face in anticipation. Though I will never claim to have actually seen him, I will say I feel as if a trick of the light or a stray shadow has sometimes looked as if they were trying to reveal him to me. My biggest worry is I think he's getting closer with each time I fail. He started right outside my doorway, but he was a mere three feet from me last time. I can't really tell because he isn't real and because I can't see him, but I think he's getting more worked up. I don't know what he's so excited about, but I can guess it will happen when he's made his way to sit at the foot of my bed. I think he's getting faster. I've been failing more often than not to keep him out. 
It won't be long now before he reaches his goal, whatever that goal is. Maybe it's to torment me and feed off my fear of what he'll do next. If that's his goal, it's succeeding. It's killing me. I can't sleep knowing he's there. I know he's never attacked me in the past, but I'm always scared that tonight will be the night he decides that enough is enough and goes for it. My lack of sleep is hurting my job. My paranoia is ruining my relationships. All I do is sit at home and hide away from the creature I don't know how to stop. I'm sick of it. So, tonight, I'm not going to hide. Tonight, I'm leaving the door to the stairwell open when I turn off the light. I'm turning off all the lights in my shitty apartment, and I'm going to sit on my bed in the dark. Tonight, when his twisted body lunges and lurches its way into my room, I'm not going to pretend I don't see him. I'm not going to pretend that just because I made him up, that means he's not real. I'm going to look him in those disgusting, cloudy eyes and accept my fate. I'm tired of waiting. Next up, we have the man who returned. John Woodford, in his first moments of returning consciousness, was not aware that he was laying in his coffin. He had only a dull knowledge that he lay in utter darkness and that there was a close, heavy quality in the air he breathed. He felt very weak and had only a dim curiosity as to where he was and how he had come there. He knew that he was not laying in his bedroom at home, for the darkness there was never so complete as this. Home? That memory brought others to John Woodford's dulled brain, and he recalled his wife now, and his son. He remembered, too, that he had been ill at home, very ill, and that was all he could remember. What was this place to which he'd been brought? Why was this darkness so complete and the silence so unbroken? And why was there no one near him? He was a sick man, and they should have given him better care than this. He lay with a dull irritation at this treatment growing in his mind. Then, he became aware that breathing was beginning to hurt his lungs, that the air seemed warm and foul. Why did not someone open a window? His irritation grew to such a point that it spurred his muscles into action. He put out his right hand to reach for a bell or a light button. His hand moved slowly only a few inches to the side and then was stopped by an unyielding barrier. His fingers feebly examined it. It seemed a solid wall of wood or metal faced with smooth satin. It extended all along his right side, and when he weakly moved his other arm, he found a similar wall on that side too. His irritation gave weight to mystification. Why in the world had they put him, a sick man, into this narrow place? Why, his shoulders rubbed against the sides on either side. He would soon know the reason for it, he told himself. He raised up to give utterance to a call that would bring those in attendance on him. 
To his utter amazement, his head bumped against a similar silk-lined wall directly above his face. He raised his arms in the darkness and discovered with growing astonishment that this wall, or ceiling, extended above him from head to foot, like those on either side. He lay upon a similar silk-padded surface. Why in the name of all that was holy had they put him into a silk-lined box like this? Woodford's brain was puzzling this when a minor irritation made itself felt. His collar was hurting him. It was a high, stiff collar, and it was pressing into the flesh of his neck. But this, again, was a mystery. Why would he be wearing a stiff collar? Why had they dressed a sick man in formal clothes and put him into this box? Suddenly, John Woodford shrieked, and the echoes of his scream reverberated around his ears like a hideous, demonic laughter. He suddenly knew the answer to it all. He was not a sick man anymore. He was a dead man. Or, at least they had thought him dead and had put him into this coffin and closed it down. He was buried alive. The fears of his lifetime had come true. His secret, dark forebodings were hideously realized. From earliest childhood, he had feared this very horror, for he had known himself subject to catalytic episodes, hardly to be distinguished from death. He had had nightmares of premature burial. Even after the proneness to the cataleptic condition seemed to have left him, his fears had clung to him. He had never told his wife or son of his fears, but they had persisted. They had inspired him to exact a promise that he would not be embalmed when buried and would be interred in his private vault instead of in the earth. He had thought that in the case he were not really dead, these provisions might save his life, but now he realized that they only laid him open to the horrible fate he had dreaded. He knew with terrible certainty that he lay now in his coffin in the stone vault in the quiet cemetery. His screams could not be heard outside the vault, probably not even outside the coffin. As long as he had lain in cataleptic sleep, he had not breathed. But now that he was awake and breathing, the air in the coffin was rapidly being exhausted and he was doomed to perish of suffocation. John Woodford went temporarily mad. He screamed with a fear-choked throat and as he shrieked, he clawed with hands and feet at the unyielding satin-covered surfaces around and above him. He beat upward as best he could upon the coffin's lid with his clenched fists, but the heavy fastenings held firm. He yelled until his throat was too swollen to give utterance to further sound. He clawed at the top until he broke his nails against the metal behind the silk padding. He raised his head and beat against the top of it until he fell back half-stunned. He lay exhausted for moments, unable to make further efforts. In his brain marched a hideous pageant of horrors. The air seemed much closer and hotter now, seemed to burn his lungs with each breath he inhaled. With sudden return of his frenzy, he shrieked and shrieked again. This would not do. 
He was in a horrible situation, but he must do the best he could to not give way to the horror. He had not many minutes left, and he must use them in the most rational way possible to try to escape his terrible prison. With this resolution, a little calm came to him, and he began to test his powers of movement. He clenched his fists again and hammered down. But this did no good. His arms were jammed so close against his body by the coffin's narrowness that he could not strike a strong blow, nor had he any leverage to push strongly upward. What about his feet? Feverishly he tried them, but found his kicks upwards were even less powerful. He thought of hunching up his knees and then bursting up the lid, but found that he could not raise his knees high enough and that when he pressed upward with them against the lid, his feet simply slid away on the smooth silk of the coffin's bottom. Now the breaths he drew seared his lungs and nostrils, and his brain seemed on fire. He knew his strength was waning, and that before long he would lose consciousness. He must do whatever he could swiftly. He felt the soft silk about him, and the dreadful irony of it came home to him. He had been placed so lovingly in this death trap. He tried to turn to his side, for he thought now that he might use his shoulders to heave up against the lid. But turning was not easy in the cramped coffin and had to be accomplished by a myriad of little hitching movements, an infinitely slow and painful process. John Woodford hitched and squirmed desperately until he lay on his left side. He found then that his right shoulder touched the lid above. He braced his left shoulder on the coffin's bottom and heaved upward with all his strength. There was no result. The lid seemed as immovable as ever. He heaved again, despair fast filling his heart. He knew that very soon he would give way and shriek and claw. There was already a ringing in his ears. He had not minutes left. With the utter frenzy of despair, he heaved upward again with his shoulder. This time, there was a grating sound of something giving above. The sound was like the wild peal of thousands of bells of hope to John Woodford's ears. He heaved quickly again and again at the lid. Paying no attention to the bruising of his shoulder, he pressed upward with every ounce of his strength. There was another grating sound, then a snap of metal fastenings breaking, and as he shoved upward with convulsive effort, the metal lid swung up and over and struck the stone wall with a deep clang. A flood of cold air struck him. He struggled up over the coffin side, dropped a few feet to a stone floor, and lay in a huddled mass. It was minutes before he had mastered himself and summoned enough energy to stand up. He stood inside a little vault that held no coffin but his own. Its interior was in darkness, save for a dim shaft of starlight that came through a tiny window up high on one wall. John Woodford stumbled to the vault's heavy iron doors and fumbled at their lock. He had an uncontrollable horror of this place that had almost been the scene of his perishing. The coffin there was on a shelf with its lid leaning against the stone wall, seemed gaping for him with its dark cavernous mouth. 
He worked frantically at the lock. What if he were not able to escape from the vault? But the heavy lock was easily manipulated on the inside he found. He managed to turn its tumbler and shoot its bar and then the heavy iron door swung open. John Woodford stepped eagerly out into the night. He stopped on the vault's threshold, closing the doors behind him, and then looking forth with inexpressible emotions. The cemetery lay in the starlight before him as a dim, ghostly city of looming monuments and vaults. Little sheets of ice glinted here and there in the dim light, and the air was biting in its cold. Outside the cemetery's low wall blinked the lights of the surrounding city. Woodford started eagerly across the cemetery, unheeding of the cold. Somewhere across the lights of the city was his home, his wife, and somewhere his son, thinking him dead, mourning him. How glad they would be when he came back to them alive. His heart expanded as he pictured their amazement and their joy at his return. He came to the low stone wall of the cemetery and clambered quickly over it. It was apparently well after midnight, for the cars and pedestrians in sight in the suburban section were few. Woodford hurried along the street. He passed people who looked at him in surprise, and only after some time did he realize the oddness of his appearance. A middle-aged man, clad in a formal suit and lacking hat and overcoat, was an odd person to meet on a suburban street on a winter midnight. But he paid small attention to their stares. He did turn up the collar of his frock coat to keep out the cold, but he hardly felt the frigid air and the emotions that filled him. He wanted to get home, to get back to Helen, to witness her stupefaction and dawning joy when she saw him returned from the dead, living. A streetcar came clanging along and John Woodford stepped quickly out to board it, but almost as quickly stepped back. He had mechanically thrust his hand into his pocket and found it quite empty. That was to be expected, of course. They didn't put money in a dead man's clothes. No matter, he would soon be there on foot. As he reached the section in which his home was located, he glanced in a store window in passing and saw on a tear sheet calendar a big black date that made him gasp. It was a date 10 days later than the one he last remembered. He had been buried in the vault for more than a week. More than a week in that coffin. It seemed incredible, terrible. But that did not matter now, he told himself. It would only make the joy of his wife and son the greater when they found that he was alive. To Woodford himself, it seemed as though he were returning from a journey rather than from the dead. Returned from the dead. As he hastened along the tree-bordered street on which his home was located, he almost laughed aloud as he thought of how amazed some of his friends would be when they met him. They would think him a ghost or a walking corpse. They would perhaps shriek in terror at first from seeing him. But that thought brought another. He must not walk in on Helen too abruptly. The husband she had buried ten days ago must not appear too suddenly or the shock might easily kill her. He must contrive somehow to soften the shock of his appearance, must make sure that he did not startle her too much. With this resolve in mind, when he reached his big house set well back from the street, 
Woodford turned aside through the grounds instead of approaching the front entrance. He saw windows lighted in the library of the house and went toward them. He would see who was there, would try to break the news of his return gently to Helen. He silently climbed into the terrace outside the library windows and approached the tall easements. He peered in. Through the silken curtains inside, he could clearly see the room's soft-lit interior, cozy with the shelves of his books, with the lamps and fireplace. Helen, his wife, sat on a sofa with her back partly toward the window. Beside her sat a man that Woodford recognized as one of her closest friends, Curtis Dawes. The sight of Dawes gave Woodford an idea. He would get Dawes outside in some way and have him break the news of his return to Helen. His heart was pounding at the sight of his wife. Then Curtis Dawes spoke, his words dimly audible to Woodford outside the window. Happy, Helen? he was asking. So happy, dear, she answered, turning toward him. Out in the darkness, Woodford stared in perplexed wonder. How could she be happy when she thought her husband dead and buried? He heard Curtis Dawes speaking again. It was a long time, the man was saying, those years that I waited, Helen. She laid her hand tenderly on his. I know, and you never said a word. I respected your loyalty to John. She looked into the fire musingly. John was a good husband, Kurt. He really loved me, and I never let him guess that I didn't love him, that it was you, his friend, I loved. But when he died, I couldn't feel grief. I felt regret for his sake, of course, but underneath it was the consciousness that at last you and I were free to love each other. Da's arm went tenderly around her shoulder. Darling, you don't regret that I talked you into marrying me right away? You don't care that people may be talking about us? I don't care for anything but you, she told him. John was dead, and young Jack has his own home and wife, and there was no reason in the world why we shouldn't marry. I'm glad we did. In the darkness outside the windows, a stunned, dazed John Woodford saw her lift an illumined face towards the man's. I'm proud to be your wife at last, dear no matter what anyone may say about us, he heard. Woodford drew slowly back from the window. He paused in the darkness under the trees, his mind shaken, torn. So this was his homecoming from the tomb? This was the joy he had anticipated in Helen when he returned? It couldn't be the truth. His ears had deceived him. Helen could not be the wife of Curtis Dawes. Yet part of his mind told him remorsely that it was true. He had always sensed that Helen's feelings for him were not as strong as his for her, but that she had loved Dawes he had never dreamed. Yet now he remembered Dawes' frequent visits, the odd silences between him and Helen. He remembered a thousand trifles that spoke of the love which these two had cherished for each other. What was he, John Woodford, to do? walk in upon them and tell them that they had been premature in counting him dead, and that he had come back to claim his position in life and his wife again? He couldn't do it. If Helen, during those years, had wavered in the least in her loyalty to him, 
he would have had less compunction. But in the face of those years of silence, uncomplaining life with him, he couldn't now appear to her and blast her newfound happiness and blacken her name. Woodford laughed a little, bitterly. He was then to be an Enoch Arden from the tomb. A strange role, surely, yet it was the only one open to him. What was he to do? He couldn't let Helen know he was alive, couldn't return to the home that had been his, yet he must go somewhere. Where? With a sudden leap of the heart, he thought of Lack, his son. He could at least go to Jack, let his son know that he was living. Jack at least would be overjoyed to see him and would keep the fact of his secret return from his mother. John Woodford, with that thought rekindling his little numbed feelings, started back through the trees toward the street. Where he had approached the house but minutes before with eager steps, he stole away now like a thief fearful of being observed. He reached the street and started across the blocks toward the cottage of his son. Few were abroad, for the cold seemed increasing, and it was well past midnight. Woodford mechanically rubbed his stiffened hands as he hurried along. He came to his son's neat little white cottage and felt relief as he saw lights from its lower windows also. He had feared that no one would be up. He crossed the frozen lawn to the lighted windows, intent on seeing if Jack were there and if he were alone. He peered in as he had done his own home. Jack was sitting at a little desk and his young wife was perched on the arm of his chair and was listening as he explained something to her from a sheet of writing on the desk. John Woodford, pressing his face against the cold window pane, could hear Jack's words. You see, Dorothy, we can just make it by adding our savings to dad's insurance money. Oh, Jack, cried Dorothy happily. And it's what you've wanted so long, a little business of your own. Jack nodded. It won't be very big to start with, but I'll make it grow, all right? This is the chance I've been hoping for, and I'm going to make the most of it. Of course, he said, his face sobering a little. It's too bad about Dad going like that, but seeing that he did die, the insurance money solves our problems of getting started. Now you take the overhead, he said, and began unreeling a string of figures to the intent Dorothy. John Woodford drew slowly back from the window. He felt more dazed and bewildered than ever. He had forgotten the insurance he had carried, which he had intended on giving to Jack to give his start. But of course, he saw now it had been paid over when he was believed dead. He was not dead, but living. Yet, if he let Jack know that, it meant the end of his son's long-desired opportunity. Jack would have to return the insurance money to the company, wrecking his dreamed-of chance. How could he let him know then? He, John Woodford, had already decided that he must remain dead to his wife, and therefore, to the world. He might as well remain dead to his son, too. It was for the best. John Woodford melted away from the cottage into the darkness. When he reached the street, he stood in indecision. A freezing wind had begun to blow, and he felt very cold without an overcoat. Mechanically, he turned his coat collar closer around his neck. 
He tried to think about what he must do. Neither Helen nor Jack must know that he was living, and that meant that no one in the city must know. He must get out of town to some other place, take up life under some other name. But he would need help, money, to do that. Where was he to get them? Barred as he was from calling on his wife or son, to whom could he turn for help without letting his return become generally known? Howard Norse. The name came at once from Woodford's lips. Norse had been his employer, head of the firm where Woodford had held a position for many years. Woodford had been one of his oldest employees. Howard Norse would help him to get a position somewhere else and would keep his reappearance secret. He knew where Norse's residence was, several miles out in the country, but he couldn't walk that far and he had no taxi or trolley fare he would have to telephone Norse. Woodford walked back towards the city's central section, head bent against the piercing cold wind. He succeeded in finding an all-night lunchroom whose proprietor allowed him to use the telephone. With cold, stiffened fingers, he dialed Norse's number. Howard Norse's sleepy voice soon came over the wire. Mr. Norse, this is... Woodford. John Woodford, he said quickly. There was an incredulous exclamation from Howard Norse. You're crazy. John Woodford's been dead and buried for a couple weeks. No, I tell you, it's John Woodford, insisted Woodford. I'm not dead at all. I'm as living as you are. If you'll come into town for me, you'll see for yourself. I'm not likely to drive to town at two in the morning to look at a maniac, Norse replied acidly. Whatever your game is, you're wasting your time on me. But you've got to help me, Woodford cried. I've got no money. I need a chance to get out of the city without anyone knowing. I gave your firm my services for years, and now you've got to give me help. Listen to me, whoever you are, snapped Norse over the wire. I was bothered long enough with John Woodford when he was living. He was so inefficient, we'd have kicked him out long ago if we hadn't been sorry for him. But now that he's dead, you needn't think you can bother me with his name. Good night. The receiver clicked in Woodford's unbelieving ear. He stared at the instrument. So that's what they really thought of him at the firm. There, where he had always thought himself to be one of the most highly valued employees. But there must be someone upon whom he could call for help, someone he could convince that John Woodford was still living, someone who would be glad to think that he might be living. What about Willis Gran? Gran had been his closest friend next to Curtis Dawes. He had lent money more than once to Woodford in the past and certainly should be willing to do so now. Hastily, Woodford called Gran's number. This time, he was more careful in his approach when he heard the other's voice. Willis, I've got something to tell you that might sound incredible, but you've got to believe. Do you hear? He said. Who is this, and what in the world are you talking about? Demanded Grand's startled voice. Willis, this is John Woodford. Do you hear? John Woodford. Everyone thinks I'm dead, but I'm not, and I've got to see you. What? cried the other's voice over the telephone. Why, you must be drunk. I saw Woodford lying in his coffin myself. I know he's dead. 
I tell you it's not so, I'm not dead, Woodford almost screamed. I've got to get some money, though, to get away from here, and you must lend it to me. You always lent it to me before, and I need it now worse than I ever did. I've got to get away. So that's it, said Willis Grant. Because I used to help Woodford out, you think you can get money from me just by calling me up and pretending you're him. Why, Woodford himself was the biggest pest in the world with his constant borrowings. I felt almost relieved when he died. And now you try to make me believe he's come back from the dead to pester me again? But he never died. I'm John Woodford, really, Woodford protested vainly. Sorry, old top, returned Grant's mocking voice. Next time, pick a living person to impersonate, not a dead one. He hung up. John Woodford slowly replaced the receiver and made his way out to the street. The wind was blowing harder and now was bringing with it clouds of fine snow that stung against his face like sand. He shivered as he stumbled along the streets of dark shops, his body freezing as his mind was frozen. There was no one from whom he could get help. His paramount necessity was still to get out of the city, and to do that, he must rely on himself. The icy blasts of the snow-laden wind penetrated through his thin coat. His hands were shaking with the cold. A sign caught Woodford's eye, the illuminated beacon of a relief lodging house. At once, he made his way towards it. He could at least sleep there tonight and get started from the city in the morning. The shabby men dozing inside in chairs looked queerly at him as he entered. So did the young clerk to whom he made his way. I, I'd like to stay here tonight, he said to the clerk. The clerk stared. Are you trying to kid me? Woodford shook his head. No, I'm penniless and it's cold outside. I've got to stay somewhere. The clerk smiled disdainfully. Listen, fella. No one with duds like yours is that hard up. Scram before I call a cop. Woodford looked down at his clothes, his frock coat, a stiff white shirt, and gleaming patent leather shoes and understood. He said desperately to the clerk, But these clothes don't mean anything. I tell you, I haven't a penny. Will you beat it before I have you thrown out of here? The clerk demanded. Woodford backed toward the door. He went outside again into the cold. The wind had increased and more snow was falling. The front of Woodford's coat was soon covered with it as he pushed along. It came to him as a queer joke that the splendor of his funeral clothes should keep him from getting help now. He couldn't even beg a passerby for a dime. Who would give to a panhandler in formal clothes? Woodford felt his body quivering and his teeth chattering from sheer cold. If he could only get out of the blast of the icy wind, his eyes sought desperately along the street for a hallway where he might shelter himself. He found a deep doorway and crouched down inside it, out of the wind and out of the driving snow. But hardly had he done so when a heavy step paused in front of him and a nightstick wrapped his feet smartly. An authoritative voice ordered him to get up and go home. Woodford did not try to explain to the policeman that he was not a drunken citizen fallen by the way. He got wearily to his feet and moved on along the street, unable to see more than a few feet ahead of him, except for the whirl of snow. 
The snow on which he was walking penetrated the thin shoes he wore, and his feet were soon even colder than the rest of his body. He walked with slow, dragging steps, head bent against the storm of white. He was duly aware that the dark shops beside him had given way to a low stone wall. With a sudden start, he recognized it as the wall of the cemetery which he had left but hours before, the cemetery containing the vault from which he had escaped. The vault? Why hadn't he thought of it before, he asked himself. The vault would be a shelter from the freezing wind and snow. He could stay there for the night without anyone objecting. He paused, feeling for a moment a little renewal of his former terrors. Did he dare go back into that place from which he had struggled to escape? Then an extra strong blast of icy air struck him and decided him. The vault would be shelter. And that was what his frozen body craved more than anything else. Stiffly, he climbed over the low stone wall and made his way through the cemetery's whitened monuments and vaults towards the one from which he had escaped. The driving snow covered his tracks almost as he made them, as he trudged towards the vault. He reached it and tried its iron doors anxiously. Suppose he had locked them when he left, but to his relief they swung open and he entered and shut them. It was dark inside, but he was out of the wind and snow now, and his numbed body felt a little relief. Woodford sat down in the corner of the vault. It was a shelter for the night, at least. It seemed rather ironic that he had come back here for shelter, but it was something to be thankful for that he even had this. In the morning, when the storm was over, he could leave without anyone seeing and get out of the city. He sat listening to the wind and snow shriek outside. The stone floor of the vaults were very cold, so cold that he felt his limbs stiffening and cramping. And finally, he stood up unsteadily and paced to and fro in the vault, chafing his arms and hands. If only he had a blanket, or even a heavy coat to lie upon. He'd freeze there upon the stone floor. Then, as he turned in his pacing, he bumped into the coffin on the shelf and a new idea was born in his mind. The coffin? Why, the interior of it was lined deep with silk and satin padding. It would be warm in the coffin. He could sleep in it far better than the cold stone floor, but did he dare to re-enter it? Again, Woodford felt faintly the former terrors that he had experienced when he had awakened in it. But they meant nothing, he told himself. He would not be fastened in this time, and his frozen flesh yearned for the warmth of the coffin's lining. Slowly, carefully, he climbed up and lowered himself into the coffin and stretched out. The silken padding he sank into had a grateful warmth. He lowered his head upon the soft little pillow with a sigh of relief. This was better. He experienced an almost luxurious comfort now, but after he had lain for a little while, he felt that the top of his head was getting cold. That cold air entering kept him from being completely warm. If the lid above him were just closed to keep the cold air... He reached up and got the edge of the heavy metal lid, then let it down upon himself. He was completely in the dark now, inside the closed coffin. But he was warm too. For the lid kept out the cold air, and he was getting warmer all the time, as his body warmed up the interior. 
Yes, it was far more comfortable with the lid closed. An even warmth now pervaded his whole being, and the air inside the coffin was getting warmer and thicker. He felt a little drowsy now as he breathed that warm air, felt luxuriously sleepy as he lay on that soft silk. It was getting a little harder to breathe somehow as the air became thicker. He ought really to raise the coffin lid and let in some fresh air, but it was so warm now and the air outside was so cold and he was more and more sleepy. Something dim and receding in his fading consciousness told him that he was on the way to suffocation, but what if he was? He was better off in here than back in the world outside. He had been a fool ever to fight so hard before to get out of his warm, comfortable coffin to get back to that outside world. No, it was better like this. The darkness and the warmth and the sleep that advanced, nobody would ever know that he had awakened at all that he'd been away from here at all. Everything would be just as before. Just as before. And with that comforting assurance, John Woodford was swept further and further down the dark stream of unconsciousness from which this time there would be no returning. All right, folks, that's it. Those are all my stories. If you were a Patreon member, you heard two additional stories. And if you are itching to hear what those were and you're not a Patreon member, jump on over to patreon.com slash the new witches and join. You get lots of other benefits as well. We do a cauldron side chat, which is just a free flowing conversation that we upload once a month. Depending on which tier you join, you may also get a reading from me, tarot, oracle, or rune, sometimes a combination, just depends. And if you are not following us on social media, you can find us at The New Witches on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, though we are not active on TikTok just yet. And as I usually say, if you have a specific story in mind you would like to hear me read, maybe it's one that you've written, or maybe you just have a genre request. Maybe you want a story of possession, demonic entity, alien, whatever, feel free to message us and just let me know. I hope you enjoyed and keep it creepy. (laughs) 